0: Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend, and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point so I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Today, we're going to talk to somebody whose name is probably not known to you, and it wasn't known to me either until a fairly short time ago. His name is Patrick Hahn. He's a science writer with a very interesting uh, background and who's from what I can tell, seems to be very committed to telling the kind of stories that the official narrative doesn't want told, stories about medication of children uh, under the guise of ADHD, and uh, really the most profound story probably of most of our lifetimes in terms of science and society, and that, of course, is the COVID story. Patrick has written a book called The Day the Science Died. And it looks something like this. You can get it on uh, Amazon. And I want to share with you, before I bring uh, let, let Patrick talk for, speak for himself, an excerpt, a particular part of the excerpt that's available on Amazon, because I, I think he really hits the nail here on the head with respect to why... So much is so wrong. I have long regarded with distaste the currently fashionable view of ourselves as fragile creatures who need huge amounts of expensive medical interventions from cradle to grave to keep us alive. My background, writes Patrick, is in evolutionary biology, and two things are perfectly obvious to me. One, we evolved to thrive, and two, we evolved to thrive for a time and then to die and get the hell out of the way for the next generation. We're being asked to give up most of the things that make life worth living, including sovereignty over our own bodies, in exchange for a fantasy of never dying. This transaction deserves perhaps more scrutiny than it has received. I would agree with you, Patrick. It most certainly does. And welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tell us about your background. I mean, we all have a, a, a background in evolutionary biology because we, if you are an evolutionary biologist, all by that nature of that process became who we are. But you, I think, meant something more specific. You, this is something you've studied and researched. What tell tell, tell us the Patrick, Hans story?
1: Yes. Well, um, I am a university teacher by profession. I have spent my entire career working to make scientific knowledge available to all. Uh, I have no formal training in medicine or public health. And well, you just repeated the, uh, the key passage. Uh, it's perfectly obvious to me that we are vo- bodies evolved to function and to function very well. They didn't evolve to malfunction, and they evolved to function for a time. And then to die and get the hell out of the way of the next generation. And uh, about 10 years ago, well, more than 10 years ago now, I became aware of some capacities that were going unused. And at the preposterously advanced age of 51, I enrolled in the science writing program at the Johns Hopkins University. And at the even more preposterously advanced age of 54, I walked across the stage and received my diploma, my second master's degree. And since then, it's been quite a ride. Uh, I've
0: Can I also- just ask you what your previous career was, your previous specialty?
1: Uh, well, uh, it was social insects. Uh, I was going to be the E.O. Wilson of termites. That uh, didn't happen. That's not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All uh, right. Fair enough. So you're a sociobiology person from way back.
1: Yes, that's that's correct. In what feels like it was several lifetimes ago. I bet. I had great interest in selfish gene theory or kin selection theory or evolutionary social psychology, whatever you want to call it. And I thought this could serve as the basis for a rational system of ethics without having to believe in all that silly superstitious nonsense our ancestors believed in but try as i might if i try to base an ethical system on darwinism i can't get any farther than mein kampf or dog eat dog
0: triumph of the will
1: nature red in tooth and claw again whatever you want to call it right and yet i have always known in every fiber of my being that this is wrong we crawled out of the slime but we are called upon to be more than that
0: and it's not merely because we are impelled to disperse more of our dna into the world that we pretend to be good people in you know, order so the people will like us and not kill us and and give us opportunities to become powerful and influential because there are lots of wicked people who are powerful and influential it's an, it's not it's not um uh, you know uh, adaptive and necessarily to especially for a man to be powerful and to to be a, to be ethical and yet you know that there's some you know that there's truth in the world and evidently you you are compelled to chase after it mm-hmm.
1: yes yes well put. all right
0: so th- this book the the day the science died um it's a story that probably m- most people who I, I it's not a big topic that that i have covered here but i have spoken to i have had guests who have talked uh, have spoken about the debasement um in particular of the medical profession which i find m- an epical epical change uh, you know we when you and i were growing up Um, we were really in this world of science being an institution and the medical profession in particular being a subset of that institution that had earned a place at the table of the major human question where we would discuss the major human questions in the previous hundred years that the advances that that had been made and if with respect to the germ theory and infectious diseases, and genetics and DNA, atomic medicine, phenomenal. And all of a sudden, we're we're back to something so so distressing, so unscientific, and so illogical. What's the tell us the story? Tell us how you see it.
1: Well, yeah, the way I see it, the scientific method has achieved great success in telling us how the world works, but then it follows pretty much automatically that there is a huge incentive for people to claim for themselves the imprimatur of science without actually being science. Clinical medicine today is not science it is marketing. If you can't see the data, it's not science. And the drug companies manufacture and control the evidence purporting to show that their wares are safe and effective. And they do that on our dime, by the way. And uh, so the uh, the result, anybody with two adjacent brain cells could have predicted we are awash in useless and dangerous quote unquote medicines now my first three books were about psychiatry i hadn't originally specifically and i knew i wanted to write about the over medicalization of life uh i didn't specifically i wasn't specifically interested in psychiatry but if you're interested in over medicalization uh psychiatry provides an endless vein of examples so my first book madness and genetic determinism
0: Ah, uh, that's not prescription for sorrow
1: right right it was uh
0: it's not a simon's dot book
1: that is correct
0: okay that so i didn't, I didn't find out
1: mcmillan yeah that was uh a history of psychiatric genetics and uh which is now in its second century Psychiatric genetics, not my book. Not the book. (laughs) Uh, Now in its second century, without a single patient anywhere in the world benefiting from their findings, and you don't have to take my word on that, they themselves will tell us that and always follow this up with a demand for even more money. And my second book, Prescriptive... Well, well, why
0: don't you explain, though, what genetic determinism... Okay, so I guess your subtitle answers that question. Is mental illness in our genes?
1: Yes, and the answer is definitely not. Uh, They've spent billions and billions of dollars on psychiatric genetics research, and they found no evidence for a genetic basis for any of the so-called functional disorders. Treated. But don't
0: we, don't you, don't we find? I mean, this is the problem with anecdotes. But don't we find crazy families?
1: Sure, and that's a very good point. And uh, we know what causes the complaints that fall under the diagnostic rubric of mental illness. It's not a mystery; they are caused. Notice I didn't say triggered. Caused by physical abuse, sexual abuse emotional abuse, and every other category of trauma and loss. This correlation is robust, reliable, dose dependent. Uh, It cuts across income brackets. It cuts across ethnic identities. It cuts across national boundaries. It has been replicated again and again in cross-sectional studies, case control studies, prospective cohort studies. There is no doubt what common sense tells us is correct. Bad things happen and they can drive you crazy. And to get back to your question, doesn't the, don't these conditions run in families? Indeed they do. And that's because poverty, violence, abuse, and so forth also tend to run in families.
0: So that that was your first book and that I'm sure made you lots of friends in the world of psychiatry.
1: <laughs> yes, and then the second was Prescription for Sorrow, uh antidepressants, suicide and violence. Uh there's absolutely no doubt these drugs cause violence and suicide. The evidence began piling up as soon as these drugs were released on the market and continues. To accumulate today and my third book was on the history of uh, something we now call attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and uh, this used to be called by a long list of names hyperactivity hyperkinetic reaction of childhood uh, it goes on and on and more than 40 years of controlled studies have failed to show any long-term benefit of drugging kids and now that, in w- kids
0: means from what age
1: what uh, as young as two
0: but ha- but as old as what?
1: Well now uh, w- that's a good question. This used to be a highly contested diagnostic category that was applied mainly to young boys whose behavior disrupted classrooms. And who were expected to grow out of it anyway. And now this is seen as a lifelong debilitating disorder. Yeah, but uh, they were, and we know these drugs, amphetamine and Ritalin cause mania. Many of the children and adults given these drugs then become manic, then get a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And then are placed on, often placed on these so-called antipsychotic drugs or mood stabilizers. And those are truly nasty drugs.
0: And what are some of those drugs?
1: Uh, Abilify, uh, Clonidine, uh, Risperdal. Yeah, my book tells the story of Rebecca Riley. She was uh, two years old. And her she was diagnosed with attention deficit, ADHD at two. at two. And given clonidine, she became manic. and uh, the doctors also prescribed. So what is it
0: I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Yeah. What does it mean to say she became manic? That's a clinical diagnosis, right? Yeah,
1: yeah mania. It's um, agitated, violent. And these drugs are known to cause agitation. Uh, And um, at the age of four, she died of uh, an effect of the the drug she was given. Uh, The state gave her doctor, this Commonwealth of Massachusetts gave her doctor immunity in exchange for testifying against the parents. Uh, The other two children also had a diagnosis of ADHD. The whole family was on psych drugs uh yeah the doctor got immunity and the parents were convicted of murder um murder yes
0: yeah okay i this isn't a crime show so i'm not going to ask you to go any further into that but that's pretty grisly yeah. but but now on the flip side i mean do you, are you a skeptic with regarding the uh the 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 rubric of ADHD for adults?
1: Yes. I Well, I'm a skeptic for, for anyone. There are literally hundreds of reasons why any given child or adult might have problems with attention or uh, inattention or hyperactivity. Much better to find out what is going on in that child's world and attend to that then attribute that child's difficulties to some mythical disorder, uh, the existence of which has never been demonstrated. There's no gene for ADHD. There is no abnormality of brain structure that can be used to diagnose ADHD. There's no abnormality of brain function that is used to diagnose ADHD. And in fact, we could say that about every single one of the so-called functional disorders treated by psychiatrists. These are not illnesses. These are problems with living. And drugging people is, drugging children or adults is a preposterous distraction from addressing the problems of living.
0: Are you, a, would you? Would you consider yourself a disciple of Thomas Sasse?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, I've, I've read several of his books. Yeah, he, he was making this argument back in the 1960s. There are no mental illnesses and uh there's only problems with living and even a lot of people who hold that view will make an exception for uh people for schizophrenia and in the course of my research i've come to conclude there's no such thing as schizophrenia people who are suffer trauma or abuse have problems with their lives uh the most severely traumatized have the biggest problems and those tend to get the label of schizophrenia but there's no such thing. So I mean I
0: I mean I, mean, I know you're not a doctor. Yeah. But based on your on your understanding and it, the, we we will get to the to, to, to the new book but I'm I'm fascinated with this by this. Um when you live in Baltimore? Yes. I live in the New York area. So when we encounter what you and I would call crazy people muttering on the streets talking to people who aren't there uh you know maybe even confronting you or me as if we were out of nowhere as if we were uh in the middle of some kind of discussion or fight and they're angry at what is that's not that's not mental illness that's maladaption to yeah
1: exactly I mean um for example, I we, mean, cause
0: I don't, because to some extent, it sounds like we might be talking about a a semantic distinction.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are people who have problems. At this point, people start kicking over straw men. I, uh, you know, would you leave them there in the streets to die? No, I don't. I think they should be helped, but I don't think we're helping them by pretending that they have a drug treatable brain disease. There's no evidence of any kind of brain disease, and Uh, as consumption of psychiatric medicines has skyrocketed, so has the proportion of the population disabled by mental illness. That is not what happens when treatments work. So yeah, I'm all in favor of broken, damaged, hurting human beings getting help. I just don't think we're helping them by turning them into lifelong clients of the psychopharmaceutical industry. All right,
0: but so then where, what, what then is the, in other words, but so then these, but these are behavioral problems, obviously. Mm -hmm. These are people who are unable to adapt to the world around them the way a, I'm going to use scare quotes now for purposes of our discussion, normal person does. And of course, to some extent, this coincides with a societal you know, this goes back to this was already being made fun of by West Side Story, right? Officer Krop, Kropsky, Kropke. Uh, I, I'm deranged because I'm 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 I'm. What is it? I'm. I'm to I'm deranged.
1: Yeah, this was in the 50s and 60s when the environmental school was very uh, prevalent. Uh, uh, I can do no better than to refer you to C.S. Lewis's essay, "The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment." and
0: oh, he, i'm sorry, i'm deranged because i'm dep- i'm depraved because i'm deprived that's what i was yeah, thinking. Of.
1: yeah okay yeah i can do no better than to refer you to cs lewis's essay uh, the humanitarian theory of punishment which was written more than 60 years ago but it's just as up to date as today's headlines i'm say.
0: sure i'm sure it is all right so here we have so you you saw that there an entire segment of what is part of the medical establishment is not e- essentially from your from what you're seeing, not dealing with, really with science with the scientific. They're not applying the scientific method,
1: right? They're the uh, as a, clinical medicine isn't science. It's designed to look like science. Um, the drug company, the trials are run by the drug companies, and uh, who do not. Oh, So, use- all
0: right, so to define clinical medicine.
1: I'm referring to randomized controlled trials.
0: So, what we would, so what I think what people generally who are not science writers would call experimental medicine or uh, research medicine. Right, right. Okay.
1: Randomized controlled trials. And, you know, in the first place, there's that weasel word effective. When you say a drug is effective, what does that mean? Well, it means it has an effect. Well, of course, it has an effect. If it didn't have an effect, it wouldn't be a drug. There's no requirement that a drug have an effect that translates into a meaningful improvement in patients' lives. Moreover, uh, the drug companies control every aspect of the trial. including the choice of patients, they may reject. I mean, a trial is supposed to be done on a representative sample, the people who will be taking the drug in actual clinical practice. But in actuality, they may reject eight out of nine applicants to get the ones that they think are gonna give them favorable results. Uh, They control the length of the trial, the dosage, the choice of comparator drugs, if any, uh, the adjunctive medications given, the statistical tests applied, uh if they don't like the results, they can change the endpoint. And if they still can't get the results they want, they can bury entire studies. They do that all the time. Sure. And uh so yeah, there's it it's I know it's it's saying the emperor has no clothes on a vast scale, but we cannot believe the whole vast edifice of randomized controlled trials.
0: And this goes also back to the Kinsey, the Kinsey uh study. Where you know he 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 came up with conclusions and uh, data based on a preposterously non-representative sample,, yes. but which fit the social narrative, or at least the narrative of elites at that time, who were not so different from the elites of this the elites of this time. Um, and now, fast forward to two thousand and twenty. And we're seeing something that we thought would be much less likely. We said, okay, when it comes to mental health, you can certainly understand why there's ambiguity, why there's a certain aspect of subjectivity, uh, behavior itself. What's normal? Fine. But on the other hand, something like a virus, you have it or you don't have it. Symptoms, you have them, you don't have them. Vaccines, we all took vaccines. We didn't get... Thank God, rubella, we didn't get polio. Just, you know, we we didn't have to fear things that our parents and grandparents had to fear. What could go wrong? That's a question, not rhetorical.
1: In uh, the 70s, I mean, yeah, it's, um, as I said, vaccines were not even on my radar. Uh, They uh, removed, they took away the ability to sue if you believe that you or your child was harmed by a vaccine. There's no other product for which we do that. That means they eliminated the process of discovery. And that's how we found out about the dirty tricks of the drug companies for so many other drugs.
0: You mean before, before before that legislative change?
1: And predictably then the, you know, people were suing and predictably the number of vaccines on the schedule exploded. It was, I believe, eight when I was a child. Now it's 74. And if anybody is going to tell me all 74 are essential, I can't imagine what they're basing that on other than their blind faith in the drug companies and the regulatory agencies, which are the handmaids of the drug companies. Um, but uh Yeah, I I have, as I said at the end of the book, I have questions I did not have before beginning this. And I said, I'm not gonna say anything more today, but I will say one thing. This is my manifesto to the medical profession. Stop talking at us in terms of the herd immunity. If vaccinating a given child cannot be expected to result in a net reduction, the risk for that child shouldn't even be on the table. And uh, to say otherwise, you're saying a mother who's conceived a child, carried that child for nine months, given birth to that child, and now is caring for that child 24/7, She should put that child at risk for the sake of some hypothetical child or some hypothetical 62 year old. And I I would say anyone who thinks that is a good idea has lost sight of being human.
0: Well, I mean, vaccinating
1: the child will reduce the net risk for that child. Then there's no need to invoke the herd immunity.
0: And and, I mean, what you just described also just is is also an apt way of looking at the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Not let's take sick people and. Tell them, okay, we're going to quarantine you. We're going to quarantine the whole world.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: So that's why I what that's why I quoted your that passage at the beginning, uh, and and you aptly picked up wh- wh- what I was getting at, which is that there's there there there's a hole in our souls. Um, people are. We see two, I mean, among the many phenomena that we see that people are, that our society is going through a spiritual crisis. One is that there's this obsession with safety. I'm not saying that, therefore, let's go down, let's, let's go to pr- pr- phenomenally deep um, sea locations in technologically unsound, uh, you know, submersible craft because uh, because anyone who thinks otherwise is you know is 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 a worry I'm talking about this idea, as you say that w- germophobia and we're you know we're gonna de- the whole that whole scene, a, B on uh, on another track, we're gonna fight against the way God made us. I doctor thought I was a, a man when I grew up. My wife thought I was a man when she married me. Somehow, biology thought I was a man when I produced children. Well, guess what? I'm really, and one look at me tells you, I'm really a woman. And I'll be damned if I let God and nature, much less my wife, and my obligations to her, prevent me from self-fulfillment. So It's the same problem, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. This uh, this, um, whole sex change industry is just the the logical culmination of these trends you know the purpose of political propaganda well it's certainly not to inform it's not even to entertain it is to humiliate people by forcing them to pretend to agree with things that they know are complete nonsense like uh dylan mulvaney is a woman and he's not, and no amount of surgical mutilation or hormonal poisoning will make him a woman.
0: So this is a great opportunity for me to talk, to to to, to segue to um, Samizdat, the Samizdat Health Writers Cooperative, which is who published this and several of your last few books. Samizdat, uh, as those of us of a certain age know, Means uh, secret publications. It comes from the Soviet
1: uh, Soviet era.
0: From the, right, from, from the. So I'm trying. What what was the word? Not refuseniks. That's the the dissidents. Soviet. I'm sorry.
1: Dissidents.
0: Dissidents. Right. The, the Soviet dissidents, and it was the way that the that the Gulag Archipelago and many other important works were first read and distributed in the Soviet Union for all practical purposes, well after the Stalin era, because would had been impossible at, at that time. But in the 60s and 70s, it did become something of a thing. And I spoke recently with Michael Malice, who is, of course, a Russian, and who just wrote a book called The White Pill. And his argument is, first of all, as bad as things are here, you, you really have no idea how bad they can get and have gotten, and B, because they're not that bad, and because we have a tradition here of resisting authority and of free inquiry, there's hope. That's why he calls his his book The White Pill. Now, you're engaged in Samizdat uh, to a certain extent. No one is going to arrest you yet. I mean, this isn't Canada um, for... Writing and publishing books like this, you and your friends. I know. I know that, that you, there are a few other people who are involved in in um, uh, in, in this cooperative, which you know I find fascinating. I, I'm 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 an old dissident myself, in certain ways, which is kind of an odd place for a lawyer to be, and that would of course explain my interest in career. Um, but do you share his view that? doing writing books like you're writing and talking about them on podcasts could lead to change
1: uh well i hope so all we have to all we can do is try and uh when i'm on my deathbed i'd like to be able to to know that i i did something to leave the world a better place or at the very least that i tried um yeah i'm i'm uh I wrote in in my book, my latest book, I wrote about my nieces and nephews, and uh, I'd like to leave to them the kind of freedom and prosperity I took for granted as a boy. And if that's not possible, at the very least, to stop the bleeding and start the process of reconstructive surgery, which will extend beyond our lifetime. Which is
0: exactly how I feel about the work that I do. Uh, I I can't promise, and in fact, I I can't even contemplate that at, at, by the time I leave this world, these tremendous systemic problems that I address to some extent in my practice will have been solved. But I don't feel that I'm free to desist from the fight. Um, not only for future generations, but also because right here and right now we need to live. We we truth needs to needs to win out. Have you? besides being ignored which is of course the potentially you know a very profound form of repression have you has your work gotten you in any kind of hot water or has anyone given you any uh, aggravation from the powers that day?
1: well uh i was kicked off of media for writing about the uh, meeting of the expert panel convened on covid-19 convened by senator ron johnson uh just account was cancelled no appeal no reprieve
0: in other words you had interviews scheduled and then they were canceled that sort of thing
1: well I I it's a blogging site and yeah I I wrote a blog I wrote a post and posted it on medium within hours oh on medium yeah medium oh you I, said
0: me, you said medium and I heard yeah, media medium. okay yeah well okay uh-huh in
1: March of 2021 I appeared as a guest on Dr Bregan's show. And, uh, we were supposed to be there to talk about my book on antidepressants, but we actually spent most of the time talking about society's panicky, scared response to the COVID pandemic. And in retaliation, YouTube took down not just that video, You're but awesome. all 200 of Dr. Bringen's videos. Oh,
0: Dr. yeah, they're terrible.
1: And, and uh, last, uh, Last year, my Facebook account was restricted for uh, a post that went against their community standards. Uh, And every bit of information in that post was taken from the CDC's Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And more recently this year, my Facebook account was restricted again for posting an unflattering picture of Hunter Biden to illustrate a point I was making about the sexual revolution. And funny thing is that same post also had unflattering pictures of Lizzo, Madonna, Anthony Weiner, uh, Sam Brinton, Sam Smith, and all these were okay with Facebook censors. So Facebook clearly is running interference for the Biden campaign.
0: I don't think anyone ever doubted that. Um, do you I mean I and mean, part of the reason that that I you know wanted to have you on was that I saw that you are writing about something, and you know, other I mean, look Scott Atlas has a better platform than you. and to some extent he, he's not entirely blameless because he will he was part of the problem and although we tried to make changes he didn't really start talking about what was going wrong or at least i don't know maybe it's not fair maybe he did and really nobody was listening i mean they you know they got rid of him as soon as they possibly could is there any have you you read his book uh
1: no i have not
0: i i think you should because i I, it looks a lot you know it sounds a lot like you might very well be kindred spirits and maybe i wasn't being fair to him A plague upon our house. My fight at the Trump White House to stop COVID from destroying America. That's it. And that's a nice, you know, number of ratings. And after all, they they are letting them sell it there, and they're letting they are letting them sell yours. Yes. Um, That you know. So you should definitely take a look at that.
1: Okay, I I will.
0: Do you have have you picked up any inkling that anyone in the medical profession is beginning to see the light about this is beginning to be honest about it
1: uh yes well uh dr bregan uh i mentioned him i was i've been on his show several times he's been speaking truth to power for over 50 years now uh dr healy the founder of Dot, has been my unofficial mentor these past eight years and he's possibly the world's foremost Critic of the pharmaceutical industry, and uh, of course, he's he's a psychiatrist by training.
0: That's Brechin B R E
1: G G I N, yeah.
0: American psychiatrist, critic of shock treatment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yes, he, he seems like a fascinating person as well. Yes, and uh, the okay, but I mean, these are sort of these are sort of habitual dissidents.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Anyone in the institutions? Anyone you know in the major medical schools or, or I I I mean I, I'm not aware of I'm not aware of it.
1: Well, Dr. Healy is prof- he's the founder of SamiStat. He's professor of medicine at McMaster University. He's been my unofficial mentor these past uh Eight years, yeah, but a lot of them are outsiders, like Bob Yoho. I was on his podcast, and he's a retired MD, so he doesn't have any. These are
0: these are basically these are individuals, but the the hive remains intact. Yeah, I
1: think that's correct to say. So you have to figure they're they're just as much prisoners of the system as the rest of us. They get out of medical school before they have earned a dime in the practice of medicine they have uh, a 200,000 dollar indenture hanging around their necks and the only way they're going to pay that back is by going the line following the guidelines and uh just foisting all kinds of uses of dangerous medicine and they'll
0: even pull your license if you're a doctor and you step over the line i mean it's you know in california and other states they've taken action against against experienced licensed physicians i mean i, I have a, a my doctor is someone who i respect tremendously he's an old friend from way before he, he went to medical school and he's really really a good doctor and i'm sitting there in his office both of us wearing masks And I'm already, you know, I I was a mask skeptic from go, but it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world to him. And, you know, there is a socialization phenomenon. So, you know, you can be a prisoner in more more ways than one. And it's, you know, until fairly recently, it really became, it was just unthinkable in these medical offices to, for a person to allow his breathing apparatus to, to not be covered by, you know, some kind of schmata.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I remember last January that that fellow Jordan Tristan Walker, the the Project Veritas, released that video. Right. And he was on some kind of uh, uh, date that he hooked up, that he, uh, he thought it was a blind date. In fact, it was a Project Veritas investigator videoing him. And here, this guy, he's the director of research at Pfizer, and he was chuckling about regulatory capture, like a smirking schoolboy boasting to his chums about cheating on his exams. So we finally got to peek behind the curtain and we got to see the banality of evil. No secret cabals in black robes and hoods. Uh, yeah, there he is. No secret cabals in black robes and hoods ordering the depopulation of the planet, or any of the other things they think. So this
0: is you. I, I want to thank you because you 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 have preemptively answered my last question for you today, which was, do you th- you know the, the conspiracy stuff? Do you believe you know is this really Bill Gates trying to turn everyone into android robots? Uh, you know, is is it the World Economic Forum uh, trying to, you know, control us all, or is it is it just a, in your view, a series of socially adaptive, but species wise harmful uh, phenomena that are reinforcing each other, which is what how I perceive it.
1: Yeah, the latter. It's it's a too big to fail situation. It's like World War One, which I think future historians may well. Marked down as the beginning of the end of Western civilization. Oh, and nobody wanted this to happen. But they had these institutions and ways of thinking that made it inevitable this would happen. And, uh, you know, we we have something similar today. It's um, you have the the way the system is set up. The uh, drug companies. Take our money. 86% of all prescription drug costs are paid for out of pocket. So, uh, no, I'm sorry. 14% are paid for out of pocket. 86% that makes more sense. not paid for out of pocket. So you're paying through higher taxes, higher prices. Right.
0: It's the rates- boy. It's the boiling frog. You never really feel the pinch. You just, little by little, your, your taxes go up and your insurance rates go up. And your cost of living goes up. And you don't realize that you are paying for everyone's medication, everyone's sex change operations, everyone's way to mulct the system.
1: If you plot healthy life expectancy as a function of per capita spending on healthcare, the United States is almost literally off the charts due to our combination of high costs and terrible outcomes. And between 2014, that right there tells me something is broken. And between 2014 and 2019, life expectancy in the United States dropped every single year. The last time that happened was during one of the great plagues. And this this should be headline, front page headline news, but it's not. This was before COVID, Mike, before COVID. Why isn't everybody talking about this yeah and uh we have this system i mean that the drug companies they have a fiduciary duty to maximize profits they can't do otherwise if they do the shareholders will fire them they could be sued they could even be jailed and uh you know i've spoken to people uh like kim Witchak, she's a wonderful lady she she was uh They, uh, her husband had just landed, this was 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago. Her husband had landed his dream job at a startup. And then the excitement he was having, trouble sleeping. And so his family doctor prescribed Zoloft, which, as you know, is manufactured by Pfizer. And he went into the garage and hanged himself, didn't even leave a note. This was a man who had everything to live for. And at the trial, the, 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 uh, Pfizer's legal attack dogs were examining Kim and insinuating that, uh, she was cheating on her husband. She uh, drove him to it. Say it again.
0: And that and that for that, she drove him to it.
1: Yes. And Oh, Oh, there's a, I have an even more horrifying story. Um, Matt Miller, 13-year-old boy was having trouble adjusting to his new school. And uh, Dr. Healy was the expert witness in this case, by the way. Matt Miller, 13-year-old Matt Miller, was having trouble adjusting to his new school. And uh, so his parents took him to the family doctor who prescribed Zoloft, said, check back in a week. Matt didn't have a week. He went into this room and hanged himself from a coat hook that was barely higher than he was tall. And so then the next thing the family knew, they went to court to try to get some modicum of justice for their son. Next thing you know, you've got the uh, forensic experts hired by the high-priced, Pfizer's high-priced legal attack dogs coming to your house to look for semen samples on the carpet because obviously your son's death had nothing to do with the drugs he was taking but this was a case of auto-erotic asphyxiation. You know, where do they find people who are willing to do this? Well, for the right price, for enough money, you can. You can find people who are willing to do this. These are people who have lost all sight of what it is to be human. They're the ones who think they should decide what goes into our bodies.
0: Patrick Hahn, The Day the Science Died. Thanks for joining us. It's really nice getting to know you.
1: Yes, likewise.
0: And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. We'll be in touch. Wonderful. All the best. Have a great day. You too. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.